Welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club. I'm Simon Evans and I'm joined here today by... Neil Thompson, hello. And we're fortunate enough to be uh, speaking with Dr. Michael Greaves, um, who's famously uh, coined the phrase Digital Twin. So Michael, I wonder if you could introduce yourself to us, please. Sure, I'm happy to do that. And so uh, as you uh, have uh, told the audience, I'm Dr. Michael Greaves and uh, I am uh, currently the uh, Chief Scientist for Advanced Manufacturing at Ford Institute of Technology, but uh, but basically my background has been primarily in the uh, business and IT and manufacturing area uh, my entire career. So um, I had started off pretty early on, uh, probably before there were chief information officers uh, running uh, major uh, mainframe computers. Uh, early in my career, I was lucky enough to, to basically get involved with computers uh, when I was in high school, and, and today those computers uh, wouldn't even uh, qualify as your watch today. But but it was a, a great opportunity to, to get involved with that, and uh, I created my first uh, company in that area when I was in, uh, in fact, before I was 30. Um, and by uh, by the uh, the end of the 90s, I decided to go back and uh, and get my uh, doctorate from Case Western, uh, and started to to look at the whole idea that information had been, uh, had been sort of neglected as a key driver of the, of the economy and the way we do things. In fact, there was a, a chapter in a book uh, uh, that just came out from Case Western where I sort of described um, why I didn't use it as my dissertation because the whole idea of getting your doctorate is to get your doctorate, not to necessarily do new work. So, so um, the whole idea was basically to, to, to get through, but I had spent a lot of time doing some research in that particular area. So um, I got tired of dealing with the attorneys and accountants uh, as CEO of my own company in 2000 and, and moved. I, I technically retired. Um, of all the things I've done in my life, I've uh, been very, very successful in many different areas. I failed miserably in retirement. So um, I've gotten, I got involved. Uh, in fact, I, was, I started off at the University of Michigan and, and started fooling with this idea that says, uh, we really are looking at kind of two different worlds. We're looking at the physical world we've always uh, worked with, but now there's this virtual world that basically allows us to move work from the physical world into the virtual world and do much, much more than we possibly could have ever done. So, um, so um, I basically uh, uh, did a lot of, of areas pretty much focused on product lifecycle management because I think that's sort of the, the key of, of de-siloing information across the, you know, how you, how you create products. So, so I was focused on that. Um, I started working uh, with NASA in about 2006, and that's when we transitioned uh, of what really hadn't been called the digital twin into the digital twin and sort of focused on that. So there was a lot of work that was, that was done in that particular area. I, I will tell you, having talked to the digital twin, they are very pleased that there's a fan club for it, but uh, the 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 whole idea basically kind of took a took a life of its own in 2015 when there was a short article in the Economist that sort of talked about the digital twin, and that seems to have driven a lot of interest in this particular area. So I've been with the, with Florida Tech, uh, as I said, I'm the chief scientist for advanced manufacturing. I'm also the executive vice president for operations there. Um, so I'm sort of back uh, doing management, which is not my first love, but uh, um, I- I'm, I'm really sort of focused on uh, how do we advance this whole idea of working in a virtual world and having sort of these virtual artifacts 
that we can do things with. So um, I've done a lot of work with, with a lot of the major companies, General Motors, Boeing, um, NASA, Oak Ridge National Labs, think organizations like that, that that have really been on the forefront of how do we basically uh, use information as a replacement for wasting physical resources. And that's the entire premise behind it. So that's sort of the, the, the long introduction, but, uh, but hopefully it gave you a little background here. Such a colorful background. And I guess I'm going to be really cheeky and ask the questions. So you listed some companies there that are quite aspirational. I say aspirational, inspirational from a, a digital twin perspective. Could you, could you pick a favorite out of those? Well, the, the, my favorite has got to be NASA. I mean, uh, um, you know, the one thing you can't say when you're in a NASA meeting is it's not rocket science. It always <laughs> is. And so, so uh, um, the, you know, they're always on the, on the cutting edge of, you know, what, what can possibly be. Now, the, the private companies are doing a good job, but the NASA sort of set the stage for, you know, how do we actually go after really tough problems. Um, and the digital twin was a natural there because quite frankly, the cost of a, a launch is about $500 million. And oops is not a word you wanna hear when, uh, when you're basically launching one of those things at that kind of cost. So the more we can do virtually there it is really a big opportunity. What struck me about the kind of evolution of the term, and it was interesting to hear you say that it started to get more and more traction in 2015 or so when the Economist article happened. Because I think you, maybe in one of your previous parts, people have traced the origins of what a digital twin, as you kind of said there, back to some of the really early examples from NASA. So I think it was, isn't it the Apollo 13 missions are one of the earliest examples of using some type of system to represent the physical. And it's funny then how it comes back full circle and that was then the, the, I guess, the main genesis for this new wave of digital twin, if you will. So in that particular case, they actually had kind of a physical twin of Apollo 13. Uh, and in point of fact, one of the first things that I kind of commented on when I, when I first started with NASA is they actually had a plywood area where they fit stuff in. And I said, why are you guys doing that? Because we clearly can do this in terms of modeling and simulation. So, so they were driven by the fact that you can't get your hands on the physical product once it's out of your reach. And I think that set the stage for what NASA had to deal with is that, you know, once you launch a, a rocket or you have people out in space, you really can't send a repair person up to go see what the problem is. And so, so you, you need some sort of, of secondary twin. And in NASA's case early on, it was a physical twin. I mean, they basically had stuff they put together but it was, it was obviously something that, that really drove them to say, look, we need to do this stuff virtually for two reasons. One is we can't put our hands on, on the physical things once they're launched. But secondly is, is that we really need to, to uh, explore all the opportunities and we can do that much cheaper and, and better virtually than we could physically. NASA had an old joke is faster, better, cheaper, pick two. Uh, and uh, the whole idea in terms of, of moving it into virtually is we really could start to pick three. And so, so that sort of drove a lot of the, the impetus to, to do modeling and simulation and, and basically be able to, to have this, uh, this moving physical stuff into virtual space, assuming you can get the virtual space to really be the same fidelity as the physical spaces. 
Um, you know, one of those always things is, is physical trumps virtual every day of the week. And so you better get it right in the virtual side. Absolutely. Um, no, thank, thank you. I th and I think that's interesting, isn't it? Like the shift of moving things from the physical to the digital and what that means, and particularly around the space of fidelity and how detailed the environment should be is an interesting question because what we've seen emerge recently in kind of the built environment space is now there's a lot of fixation on having the digital representation to be a very, very high fidelity model. Uh, sometimes maybe more so than would be needed for a particular use case. I, I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are on more so on how the direction of travel has moved away from the original, uh, uh, let's say, idea of just moving things to the virtual for efficiency, for costs, for um, re removing errors, to now be fixed on maybe more of the technology and become much more of a product-led agenda. Well, you know, I mean, I think there's sort of a couple pieces there. Um, is is who's pushing sort of the technology piece are the people who are selling technology. So, so you have to be a little bit careful about sort of, you know, that they, they basically developed a super hammer and do you really want to use it? And so the, the thing that you just said before is, is use cases. And so I drive everything from use cases. So you really want to kind of say, what am I trying to accomplish? So, so remember my premise about this is that that information is a replacement for wasted physical resources. So if I, if I take any task, I can divide it up into two pieces. You know, if I was omniscient and omnipotent, which my wife will tell you I'm not, um, I, I basically would only apply the resources that I absolutely needed to basically get a task done. All the rest is wasted. Um, and so if I look at information, it's never gonna replace the physical resources I need to do the, the task itself, but it can replace the wasted resources. And so that's what I'm looking for is, is can I replace, you know, wasted physical resources, time, energy, uh, uh, and material um, from the equation. And so, so my use cases need to drive that kind of, of thinking as opposed to, geez, it'd be nice if I had this wonderful hologram Star Wars like that I could basically move into. But if I, if I can't find a use case for it, why am I doing that? So so, so, so people think, well, the only way I have a digital twin is I have this full fidelity replica of it. And the issue of it is, is that I have a spectrum. I have a spectrum from simply collecting some information about it that basically gives me some value to this full spectrum if I can figure out what exactly I want to do with it. Yeah, it's funny that maturity spectrum as such is the, the the team here they joke that I always talk about the fixation for most now on digital twins is this unicorn state of this completely like, fabulous asset that does everything for you of an intricate level of detail, but it's completely not use case driven. Um, so no, I, I really agree with that. It's about what you're trying to do here and now, and how will that add value? You don't get many opportunities to talk to somebody that's interfaced with NASA in this much detail. So I've got a try and squeeze the questions in in the time and i think one of one of the key ones is you know a thing that's emerging in the built environment underneath this is i think from your world is the the model-based systems engineering approach it's where instead of engineering design through documentation it's engineering design through the connectivity and aggregation of engineering models that represent a product and applying that to building social and economic infrastructure. So what I mean by social and economic infrastructure is, you know, social infrastructures like buildings and hospitals and economic infrastructures is like railways and, and roads. 
you know, can we build things um, in the digital twin space without the model-based systems engineering approach? Is that a basic thing that we need to get right first? So, so, so I, and I've written quite a bit on the fact that, that you know, systems engineering is really product lifecycle management and, and that, that you have to focus on it. My, my issue about uh, systems engineering and model-based systems engineering is it's really uh, system accounting, okay? I basically create my requirements and, and I do verification and, that, and validation and call it a system, and it isn't, okay? I mean, unless it works, it basically, um, it, 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 I, I sort of view it as, as, you know, it's sort of part of the equation, but, but we kid ourselves about really what systems engineering is. And if you look at model-based systems engineering, first of all, there isn't really good agreement on what the model is. Is it the, is it the abstract uh, SysML or is it uh, the geometric model or is it both? Or, or so? So, so there's a lot of fuzziness around that, but, but if I really look at kind of what we're doing, it, it's really about the whole product base over the life cycle, and it is all the information that I need to basically be able to, to create value. So, so that, in fact, the chapter in a book and, uh, and a couple of papers, basically say there's a lot of value to, to model-based systems engineering. But don't confuse that with the system itself. I mean, um, and in fact, I've got a new chapter coming out in a book for the Aeronautics and Astronautics Institute uh, where I'm talking about sort of uh, complex systems and the digital twin. So you got simple systems, you know, you can, you can basically get your hands around that. When I start to move into complex systems, you know, nuclear reactors, spacecraft, uh, power generation systems, buildings, um, I now have this complex uh, of system things and, and I just don't know whether the MBSE as it's sort of structured uh, allows you to, to, to capture sort of all the wealth of, of the behaviors that are going to happen. So, so um, while I'm not, in fact, in fact, we basically at AIA developed a, a whole group called Case Complex Advanced Systems Exchange because we weren't happy with necessarily the, uh, the structure and uh, limited focus that MBSE had. So I think MBSE is, a, is part of the toolkit, but, but it isn't, don't confuse that with having all the aspects of the system. That's really interesting. Thank you. Because um, I think the frustration, so, you know, somebody, the, how can we call it, the, the built environment sector, someone that, you know, working complex environments like nuclear reactors, for example, um, and we get lots of examples thrown to us from other industries, automotive, aerospace, NASA, um, what we just discussed there. Um, do you feel, I guess it's zooming back further from engineering as uh, in general, is it still missing the tools to be able to create this digital representation of the things that we create? Is it the, so the engineering profession itself needs to do something differently, not just the tools? Yeah, I think the, from, from my perspective and from, from a sort of an academic and, and what do we need to do is I think we silo uh, areas too, too much in terms of, of the fact that uh, you get a, people that know a, a lot of, about a little and, and what happens is you wind up basically optimizing uh, specific areas of the system and sub-optimizing the system in general. And so, so this broader-based education, I think, needs to occur so that you have understanding of the other aspects of the system so that you're, so you're not sort of wedded to, 
to, gee, I have made my um, HVAC the most optimized it possibly can, but it neglects other areas of, you know, building performance. So, so again, you know, you go back and forth between, you know, gee, I need to really do a good job in a particular discipline to, you know, if it doesn't, if, if I optimize that and suboptimize the system, what do I done? So, so I think a broader perspective, um, which is what systems engineering uh, is supposed to do, is I think in, in, important. And I think the digital twin sort of represents that kind of thing. I mean, it's about the system. It's not about, in essence, a, a component of the system. That's interesting. Thank you. I guess I got a couple of questions. I'll maybe step back and then go into the ones particularly. But so I think from our perspective, it's really interesting speaking to you is, as I said, the widely credited as being the inventor of the digital tune phrase, coining the phrase. I'd love to hear from your perspective, what would you define a digital twin as? What is your definition of a digital twin? So, so, um, so just to set the record straight, um, I, coined, I basically created the concept of the digital twin. My colleague at NASA, John Vickers, actually coined the physical term. I called it the information mirroring model um, because I was in my academic phase at the time and kind of... Uh, you string a lot of words together when you're in the academic side. So, so, so John Vickers basically actually coined the term digital twin. In fact, I think I called it the doppelganger or some other stupid name, but, but, um, but, but, but with that said, um, the whole idea of the digital twin is that basically it is an actual or potential representation of a physical system. So if I, if I keep that sort of simple, I have a lot of room to, to go with. I mean, I have a, a little more uh, complicated one for one of my papers, but if you stop and think about it, is really, is it a potential or is it an actual physical system that I'm representing? If it's, you know, a flying carpet, uh, it's not, you know, it's digital twin of flying carpet doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, that's basically something a lover uh, come into being, but, if it, but, but as soon as I have an intent to create a product, I start with the, my digital twin. That's, that's interesting because there's a, a, a hot debate in in our industry is you know when when is a digital twin conceived and I guess it's the um, so uh, referring back to a conversation with Erwin Frankschultz from IBM he's saying that it's not it's not about the representation of something physical but the representation of something real which is slightly different so you know it's it's not just the jet engine it's the services and the things that it enables around the jet engine also is included in the digital twin so be interested to hear you know, what your thoughts on its boundary um where it begins if it ends is it physical is it real is it what is it yeah when does a twin become a twin <laughs> well so, so as i said i think a twin becomes a twin when, when you basically have an intent to create something that that will have a manifestation in the physical world and so so I get, I get, I mean, it's sort of a pet peeve. In fact, I've been going up against some of the AIA people about that is, you know, we, we don't have a physical twin until it rolls off the assembly line. Well, nobody walked into a factory, pounded metal, and said, I hope an airplane comes out of here. Um, they basically, you know, have, have done the design work well in advance. And, and the reality of it is, is that it's called something else, but it really is. And that's why I came up with the physical twin types. I mean, you have the physical twin, prototypical physical twin, which is basically, you know, what, what you start to develop with 
you have it physical to an instance, which is when I make something, I really want to basically have the representation of that particular unit. And then the physical to an aggregate is if I take all the stuff that I made and I aggregate it, I, I can now get some real information about, you know, how, how it actually performed and do prediction, learning, um, and things like that. So I think that the, the idea that says, gee, the physical, there isn't a digital twin until I have a physical thing is uh, not representative. It gets a little confusing is that basically the people that do this have this focus on, gee, what's the dictionary definition of a twin? But if you really stop and think about, you know, it's a metaphor, okay? It really doesn't have to have all the parts and pieces. And if they really are talking about a, a virtual version connected to the physical version, we're talking about Siamese twins, okay? We're not really talking about simply twins. So, so I think it gets confusing even when they start to, to do that. Uh, to the question of, of sort of the intangible stuff, it's interesting. And, and I have always thought that you could have uh, a digital twin of, of things that weren't physical, like information systems or logistics systems or things like that. I have sort of stayed away from it because it was, it was at that point in time it would have been I think a lot more confusing, but but I am good with having you know digital twins of this sort of physical manifestation, even if it isn't um, even if it isn't uh, um, a tangible thing that has geometry. So um, so I have you know I'll, I'll I won't say reluctantly but basically cautiously sort of added some things into presentations I do to talk about digital twins of logistic systems or, or information systems or management systems. And so I don't have a problem with, with that, but I think, I think you got to be a little bit careful in terms of, of determining, you know, is it something that really represents something that's happening in the real world or is it, is it just simply your idea of a concept and it really doesn't translate? So to so give you an example is one of the first things, always did as, as a, um, when I went in to, to look at, a, at somebody's system is I said, okay, show me your process map. And they ha always had a nice process map with, with flows. And I said, okay, let's go follow it. You know what? Never worked. I mean, so, so, you know, so, so you have a digital twin of that process map and think that's how your organization works. It probably exactly. doesn't. <laughs> so I think you got to be a little bit careful. I mean, I mean, you, you, you can't basically um, ignore reality. Uh, and, and so if I have physical atoms that I have to move around, you can't pretend something else exists. But mm. when I'm talking about, you know, intangible things like logistic systems and, and accounting systems and things like that, um, you know, the gap between what it actually, what it actually happens and, and what you want to presume happens, you know, can sort, sort of cause a lot of confusion. An interesting thing learning about your background just there because you're not you're not just speaking from an academic perspective interesting thing is that you were you know essentially a previous cio and i wondered speaking to that peer group these people that are in charge of information management systems on whatever size of organization and how would you communicate this to that to that group like because these are key thing that for them to understand and i'm not too sure Many of them are on that journey from understanding that. Do you have any words of wisdom for that community? Well, I mean, for that community, I tell you, the key thing it has been and always will be is is 
they have to be enablers of the of the business, not the purveyors of technology. And so too often, you know, the IT departments have this great idea about I've got this new technological tool, let me push it into the organization and they generally fail miserably. The the best CIOs I know understood what the business did. Okay. And and if you understand what the business does and you're basically an enabler of that business as opposed to you think you drive it. Um, that's going to be basically be the difference between success and failure or less optimal mm-hmm. uh, solutions than, than you than you want. So, so as I said, the, the good CIOs basically, I mean, I always hated this discussion about IT alignment. I mean, IT alignment means that you can get out of line pretty damn easily and you usually do. And so, so I'm always a big believer as you embed your, IT organization into the business so that they understand what actually is going on, first of all. And second of all, you know, where does the technology do what I always claim it needs to do? And that's replace wasted resources, wasted physical resources. So, so, so that sort of would be my advice is, is the, if you have an IT organization that's sitting in their little ivory tower, you know, making decisions about how the business ought to be, chances are you've got a dysfunctional I'll tell you, chances are you've got a shadow IT group sitting out there with people that have to do the work. And then you basically have a, have, you're spending a lot of money on IT that that's never going to sort of see the light of day. Uh, you know, people think that, that the systems will drive people's performance. And my uh, saying is the mm-hmm. dumbest person can outsmart the smartest computer system every day of the week. So, so, <laughs> so you better basically make sure that you, you are, embedded in the business and doing the things. And so, so CI organizations that get it, I think are embracing the digital twin by basically working with their users to understand what are the use cases that really create value in the organization. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. That was episode one of two interviewing Michael Greaves with Neil and Simon there. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please, in the meantime, go check us out on Twitter at The Digital Twin, or you can check us out on LinkedIn at The Digital Twin Fan Club. And finally, you can find us online at digitaltwinfanclub.com.